This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the coming show, upcoming show, is not necessarily those, are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, coming up, subversity with Dan Zhang. The, uh, we'll be uh, talking with uh, several film directors this uh, hour. In the first hour, we'll be talking. First half hour, we'll be talking with uh, Laura Poitras, Poitras, who's the director of The Oath, about a man who was the driver to Osama bin Laden. And in the second half hour, we'll be talking with um, two directors, two local people actually, who are associated with UCI, who have um, directed a film on the Bracero program called The um, Harvest of Loneliness. So let's go to our interview with Laura, Laura Poitras, and we'll talk about what this whole show is going to be dedicated to uh, in the half hour. I'm talking with uh, Laura Poitras, who's the director of a new film, The Oath, uh, about the travails of uh, a couple of people who were uh, incarcerated in this war on terrorism. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was wondering how, uh, why you made this film and um, how you were able to get access to the protagonists. Yeah, I mean, the motivation for the film, I mean, it really started in, you know, in 2002 when Guantanamo was opened and, and just wondering as, as Americans, like, what, you know, really what, what we're doing um, in response to, you know, the events of 9-11 and, and, um, and just being very concerned about it. And, um, and I made a film about the war in Iraq um, called My Country, My Country. And when I finished that film, I, I knew I wanted to make a film about Guantanamo. So I, um, the first thing I did is I contacted some lawyers who were representing um, detainees. And, and I went with one. His name was David Reams. I went with him to Yemen, and he was representing several clients there. So it was once I was in Yemen that I met Abu Jandal. And Abu Jandal's story, um, for your listeners, um, Abu Jandal was Osama bin Laden's uh, bodyguard for four years in Afghanistan. And he also ran a guest house. And he's responsible for cr- recruiting several men to, to work with him in, in Afghanistan, and, uh, including Salim Hamdan, who is the second protagonist in, in the oath. And... Um, and so what the story looks at, so Abu Jandal, who was this, this bodyguard, is, is driving a taxi cab in Yemen, and that's where I met him. And so what the story looks at is this, the story of these two men, one of them who's free and was been on his bodyguard and drives a taxi cab, and the other who was, um, was, was imprisoned at Guantanamo. And so the, those are the two threads of the, of the film. And uh, were you able to, you weren't able to access uh, or to get to reach uh, Hamdan directly? Well, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the idea with, with Hamdan is, is that it's, he's kind of um, a ghost in the film, and he's, you know, when the story begins, he's at Guantanamo, and he's waiting trial. And and we that was very intentional because we wanted to, I wanted to have, um, you know, to sort of try to capture what is sort of an, an ongoing um, situation for many families where, you know, there are brothers or fathers are at Guantanamo, out of reach. Mm. So I kind of always knew that this, this storyline would be, you know, he would be absent and then Abu Jandal would be, would be present. And Hamdan actually won his case at, at one point. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that this type of uh, trial was uh, unconstitutional. Yeah, I mean, Ham- mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it's, 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 it's a really interesting story because Salim Hamdan, you know, was, 
not particularly ideologically motivated. He was Bin Laden's driver, um, but he was in the unfortunate position of being the first person um, with, a, with a strong connection to Bin Laden captured after 9-11. So he became the one that they, um, you know, was the first person that they brought charges against. And so his history is in, um, um, in, in 2006, uh, there was a Supreme Court um, ruling, um, Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, which basically argued that the creation of the military commissions were unconstitutional because the president had um, had done them without consulting Congress. And so Hamdan won the Supreme Court case in 2006, but it didn't lead to you know, him being released. It, it, it led to Congress then drafting a new military commission, which new, tri- new charges were then brought against Hamdan that didn't exist before. Retroact- then, retroactively. Retroactively. And, and then what the, what the film follows uh, is the, the trial that, gets, that happens in, in 2008, where um, he's brought before the military commissions. And, um, and so that's the, sort of the, one of the main plot lines of the, of the film, is Hamdan's trial at Guantanamo. Uh, I like the way you started the film with um, the, the children of um, the, other, the other protagonist, the mm-hmm. bodyguard for right. Bin Laden. And so it, 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 you're trying to humanize this uh, image of the terrorist, right? Well, I mean, it's kind of just, I don't know that, I mean, humanizing is a complicated, I think that it's to say, okay, um, let's try to get past certain, you know, like, you know, whatever, the media representations, we don't know who these people are and where they come from and what happens if you actually, you know, spend time. So it's what, you know, you learn with Abu Jandal where you, first you perceive him as being just, you know, the evil, and then you see him in his interactions with his son, and then you have to come to terms with the fact that he's, uh, that in that relationship, you see somebody who, who is very caring, and so how do those two things go together? And so what we wanted to do is just to, I think, try to um, I th- make these, you know, these, we've, you know, in the United States, you know, since 9-11, we've sort of upended so much of our, you know, our way of life, and you know, principles and, you know, created things like Guantanamo um, uh, because of a threat, um, and which I'm not saying is not a real threat. I think there actually there are some very, very dangerous people. Um, and uh, but, what, what, but I think it's important to understand a little bit more closely who these people are and, um, and what do they believe and, and what is, you know, the appropriate response. I, and I think, so I, th- yeah, I think the film tries to enter into that space. Like, okay, here's, I mean, Abu Jandal is somebody who actually turned away because of the, 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 the tactics um, of 9-11. And, and I think it's just important to understand where these ideological breaks happen and how they can, um, you know, help us um, do a better job in terms of, um, you know, moving forward. He actually um, was, uh, I mean, trying to explain also what attracted him to you know, to end up working for Bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- I, I found that to be very interesting because uh, also in the way he recruits uh, people, right. uh, he because you never hear that here. Uh, right, right, right. The U.S. media, mainstream media definitely doesn't right. uh, show any of this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the film, um, I think one of the most interesting things in the film are, the, are these young guys who, who seek out Abu Jandal. They're, they're um, you know, they're, they're young and... and they're, um, I, I, you know, trying to decide. Uh, you know, when I was in Yemen, there were a lot of young guys who were going off to Iraq and fighting. Mm. And these guys would seek out Abu Jandal and wanted to hear his stories about, you know, working for Bin Laden. And so I filmed these, you know, these encounters, 
between them asking questions and oftentimes challenging him um, uh, on his beliefs. And um, and then in those sessions, I mean, I think you get a really understanding of what is compelling um, these these young people, and and hopefully also what um, might be a better approach to to keep them from wanting to to go and fight. And and actually, in the film, you see as Abujando is um, is encouraging them not to go, um, but he's not. He, apologetic about his past, so so I think what motivated him. I mean, he, this is a guy who was um, he's got his, his ancestry is Yemeni and Somali, but he grew up in in Saudi Arabia when he was 19 years old. When he was a young boy, you know, teenager, he was seeing the um, the people who who fought against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, the Mojahideen, and those people come um, coming home, and you know, these young guys were sort of very influenced by them. Like, what was their journey and and their experience? And and Abu Jandal, when he was 19 years old decided to um, pack up his bags, throw them out the window, tell his dad he was going to go play soccer, and then he, <laughs> went, to, he went to Bosnia to yeah. fight. And yeah. this was in 93. And so that was the, sort of his first, what jihad experience was going to Bosnia. And then um, his travels took him to Somalia, into Yemen, where he met Hamdan, into Afghanistan, trying to get to Tajikistan, and then Ben Laden heard that, um, that there was a group of, of Yemenis um, in Afghanistan, and he then invited them to go and visit, and they ended up staying. And, and you know, one of the things that um, I think motivated Abu Jandal was I, that he describes as the sense of, of a family that he didn't have or, you know, that he was, you know, um, an estranged relationship with his dad as being one of the motivations. Right, right. Uh, in the segments you did with, uh, with the, the, te- the young people, uh, there was one point where he asked to delete what he said the day right. before. Right. And but you included it, right? Uh, why did you? You didn't want to respect what he. Asked yeah, for. you know. I mean, <laughs> I think this is you know, Abu Chanda is a very very complicated person to make a film about because he's clearly very very savvy, very media trained. I mean, you see in the film he gives interviews often, um, and and you know that he's you know this is a really smart guy, and um, and I and I felt that it was important in the film. I mean, the question that I asked that he he asked me to lead it was you know it's a necessary question to. To, to ask somebody who's in his position, I'm not going to sort of give it away in, in terms of the film, but it was you know it was, an, it was a necessary journalistic question, and then sure, I, sure. I chose to keep it in and chose to keep in his request to take it out. And I mean, I, I felt like in this situation here was somebody who, if I was, for instance, speaking to the representative of the government, so for instance, I had an interview with Dick Cheney, and he asked me to delete something. I don't think that there would be a great expectation that I would not include it. Right. I mean, this is somebody who's right. um, very knowledgeable, speaking on the record, and um, and 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 is um, somebody who is participating in in political events at a, you know at a level that it's you know that it's on the record and that and that they are um, their choices um, alter history. Right. And right. so with somebody like Abu Jando, it wasn't like he asked, he revealed some personal detail that he was worried someone might find out. I mean, it was a pretty um, important, his answer is important, and it's quite revealing yeah, um, his sure. desire not to have it in the film. Yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of how, how did you think, how do you think he would, he would see, how, if he saw this film, how would he react now? Uh-huh. Um, actually, he, he has seen it. He saw it um, not, oh. too, not too long ago in Yemen. I had one of my, uh, I sent a, a copy to Yemen, and, you know, I, I heard mixed things. At first I heard that he, he wasn't happy, and then I heard he was. So, which isn't unusual, because you'll see that he's somebody who, yeah. um, who changes his position. I think it's partly because, I mean, he's got a lot to worry about. I mean, he's got, 
I mean, as he talks about in the film, there's the younger generation of Al-Qaeda who thinks he talks too much to the West and that he, he, yeah. he gave away information, and they sort of have him on a, on, a, on a target list, and then he's got to worry about the Yemen government, and, you know, they're, they're keeping a close watch on him, as is the U.S. government. So, I mean, this is somebody who really has to navigate his world um, uh, and, 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 and sort of worry about all these factors. But from what I've heard, I think he um, overall... Yeah. Um, thinks the film is, you know, is, is well made and, and um, so. It's very revealing, yeah. I mean, given under all those constraints, he still was uh, willing to talk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the, uh, you know, most media, there's, there's not, I mean, this is a pretty in-depth look at yeah, um, a lot of different issues. And I think um, what I've found in terms of doing this kind of work and also with my last film is that it, they, in a sense, they're primary documents. They're trying to look at things on yeah. the ground, you know, from the people who are living them, and that people can draw their own conclusions from them. So people see different films when they when they look at the, uh, you know, at the film. It's not just about my perspective on these on these issues. They, you know, they 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 will, you know, judge for themselves, um, you know, who who, for instance, Abu Jandal is, and 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 what to believe and what not to believe. But he's definitely a character that we. That is, I mean, what you would say in sort of very classic narrative terms, an anti-hero. You know, this is a guy who mm-hmm. is, is a bit untrustworthy, who's, well, you know, quite charismatic, but, you know, you think dangerous at the same time, and, um, and, and fascinating in the same way that, for instance, if you watch a film like Taxi Driver, you know, that were, you know, mm-hmm. fascinating what makes these, these sort of dark characters tick, and, um, and I think he sort of falls within that sort of type of, you know, human nature. He did uh, talk to the FBI at length right after 9/11. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he was in prison during 9/11, so he had nothing to do with it. But <laughs> right. But he yeah, was I don't able want to give away too much of the story. Yeah, but yeah, he okay. was in prison in 2000, and he and he was able to help them uh, and provide really uh, oh. <laughs> important what they call actionable intelligence, support, uh-huh. whatever that means. And, right. Uh, <laughs> and so um, you know, as a re- I don't know if it's a reward, but. Um, was that a, a condition of his release? The, the Yemen government has all these uh, conditions, and uh, I thought it was a really interesting way of in rehabilitating, in a way, uh, right. people that they have sentenced to ha- enable them to go back into society. Uh, they pay for his taxi, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of stuff. Although now he's he's broke again, right? Yeah, he's broke again. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, uh, Yemen is trying to. I mean, they've got a problem. If they, they, Abu Jandal wasn't the only um, right, right. militant Al Qaeda person in jail, and they were trying to like, how do they, how can they kind of get these guys? You know, for those who are ready to, you know, part ways, uh, how can they reintegrate them? So they have what's called a dialogue committee. Um, which is also a program that the, that the Saudis have. And, oh. you know, I mean, there is, I mean, I think it's important, like, if you look at an organization like al-Qaeda, uh, um, you, you, I mean, we, I think the West, we certainly want to make it a less attractive choice for young people, right? I mean, you have to sort of stop the stream of people being attracted to this, um, which we haven't, been, we haven't been doing a very good job of. And then you also want to look at, okay, for those people who, you know, are interested in, 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 in leaving and, and, and don't have, you know, having whatever. Abu Jandal, um, you know, wasn't a participant in 9-11, and, and he wanted to, to get out, and how can you make that possible? Um, and it's not easy, you know, to, to have that background and, um, you know, have, you know, integrate into society. But the Yemen government is trying to figure out some kinds of ways to make that possible. And they also, they did the same thing when the, the guys came back from, the um, you know Mojahideen during mm. uh, fighting 
um, the, the Soviets, Soviets in, yeah. in, in Afghanistan, there was a whole sort of, you know, wave of guys who went and fought who came home and, you know, they had to figure out how to reintegrate into society. Well, that's uh, that's quite new to me because I, I mean, I maybe I just didn't read about it, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I'm just not, not knowledgeable enough about it. But yeah. I think that's an intriguing part of the film too that you you highlight that. Uh, and do you know if uh, is the U.S. funding some of this or not, or is it all locally generated? You know, I no, I mean directly, no. I mean the 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 U.S. is definitely giving Yemen money to support its counterterrorism efforts, right? Mm. And which is the same thing that they're also doing in Pakistan, Pakistan and other countries. Yeah. Mm. And so and and then the programs are you know, I think that the dialogue committee was something that was set up you know, by the Yemen government, um, to as a way to deal with the fact that um, they you know, they have a problem. I mean, this is it's a very fragile regime and they want to sort of diffuse, you know, people who who pose a threat. And um and so it's it's their solution. Um I, I don't think you know who who knows exactly the trail of of what gets you know where they want to go, but um, but I mean it's a complicated. I mean if you look at the U.S., what you know what the U.S. did in in Iraq was they they how did they you know end this you know the civil wars? They gave the Sunnis who were yeah. attacking them they gave, they paid them off, and so it's not it's um, it's a very pragmatic um, you know approach to to um, national security. But the deep yeah. Identification there yeah. is uh, well. Now they're trying to uh, stop that, right? And try to well. I, I mean, back. I think identification uh, is you so know sort of widely regarded as a. Okay, I got it. Uh, uh, so I was going to ask you about the um, uh, the, the press notes say that you were put on a no-fly list. Uh, can you explain that? Well, it's actually probably more of a of a watch list than it uh. is because I was able to fly. Um, after I made the film in Iraq, I was. Um, in 2006, when I was traveling home from a film festival in Sarajevo, I was I was stopped at an airport in Vienna, where I was told uh, on my way back to New York, where I was told by security in at the airport in Vienna that my name um, was you know triggered all kinds of security concerns, and and you know these guys put you know pulled me aside and searched my stuff, and and the guy said that that I had this very high threat score. And ever since then, I've been um, stopped at airports traveling. And usually when I'm heading back to the U.S., it doesn't seem, when I travel internationally, nobody ever, I've never been stopped traveling oh, um, between any other countries except for if there's a connection to the U.S. Actually, Israel, but I should, shouldn't say. I just spoke to yeah. I had some trouble going to Jerusalem Film Festival, um, and uh, which would happen right after that. So, but other than that, nobody seems to mind when I come and go, except for the the U.S. And um, so, what happens is, it's, it's happened about twenty times where oh, I've yeah. returned to the U.S. Um, there is there are, uh, people from the. U.S. Customs and Border, who come to the airplane, meet me at the, they, they do passport ins inspection while people are um, getting off the plane. They find me, you know, we're always very polite. Some of them I've met many times. And then I'm, and then I'm taken to secondary screening and, and asked questions. I've had, it's often happened that the, for a while, um, when I was first starting to travel back and forth to Yemen, they photocopied all my notebooks and papers. And, wow. Um, everything in my wallet and and 
you know, and that we, you know, we would always have a long conversation about the First Amendment during this, and, you know, they were always just doing their job. Um, and then, you know, there would be sort of search, and then they would search my stuff, and then I'd be allowed to leave the airport. Did they copy um, uh, uh, computer files? They've never copied anything from my hard drive or computer file or telephones mm. or anything like that, but, you know, business cards, those kinds of things. I mean, and I, uh, of course, I have I have a lawyer, and, and at some point during this, he, he said that I should, he, he recommended that I, um, not consent to the photocopying, which, which is something that you know at borders you really don't have you know particular rights. Um, but yeah. but then they actually they, they did stop. They respected that um, that I said that you know I'm happy to answer any questions, but that I feel as a as a, as a journalist that there's certain First Definitely. Amendment you know yeah, protections, sure. and so they did um, respect those wishes. So I mean, my feeling about it is. Um, you know, I mean, I wish there was some kind of an appeal process because, you know, I feel like I'm doing work that is, you know, beneficial to yeah. understanding these times. You know, I feel, right. I feel like that I'm contributing to um, to this, a certain kind of understanding that, that, and I do think that there are people um, within the government who will probably appreciate the work, you know. And yeah. so uh, it's a little bit disconcerting. But what happened recently, it was actually when I was trying to travel, premiere the film in Europe to the Berlin Film Festival, I went to the airport. And um, and I was told I couldn't fly, and and um, and this is you know, nobody JFK or JFK. JFK. Yeah, yeah, nobody says you're on a no-fly list. But you know, I asked the guys. They said, "Well, your name is coming up um, as no-fly." But then they called Washington, and my lawyers called Washington. And I was able to board. And and you know, according to the mm. research we've done, it means that I'm probably on an enhanced security list, not actually a no-fly list. Because if I were on that, I wouldn't have been able to travel. So. You know, I mean, I understand that there are people who are trying to do their job, but at the same time, it's certainly something that if it if it hinders me from traveling, then that this really starts to enter into um, a realm of uh, Kafkaesque. Yeah, yeah, Kafkaesque. You know, yeah. Can you so, uh, um, write under the? Privacy Act to try to get some of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've done a FOIA. I'm working with. Um, I, have a, I have a great lawyer, um, and I'm working with the ACLU, and they did a FOIA, and which pulled about like 80 pages of, you know, my, the the notes from the people at the airport who were always very polite, and you know, um, and and um, so we've gone through the process, and I'm sort of I've used you know sort of back channel connections, and you know, and, you know, someday hopefully, hopefully. I'll be able to travel with a little bit more ease. Um, Do you think it's because your name came up in some uh, kind of international communication and then they, it wasn't well, necessarily I mean, the film? It, it was clearly it, triggered by something, uh, the film in Iraq. That it, it was triggered oh. after. It wasn't, it was before I made this oh, film. Oh, I see. It was after. Um, yeah. So, it, I, you know, I cannot, they don't tell you. I mean, they just don't tell you. Um, yeah. I mean, I do have some friends who did, did a little bit of looking into it and, you know, it's, your name gets caught in this sort of a network, and 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 it's very hard to get out of it. And and clearly, making a film in Yemen about Al Qaeda didn't didn't probably help me too much, but um, <laughs> but, but hopefully, you know, it it you know it will end. I mean, I think that I mean, if you there's a very interesting book about the NSA by James Bamford right, who talks right. about how um, that. You know, because people who are working for NGOs or journalists or get a certain kind of access, and because you know the government doesn't necessarily ha hasn't been that good, let's say, about in getting information that that you know, but you can kind of piggyback on people who are doing this kind of work to you know put them you know flag them and then um, uh, listen in. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I would assume that this, for instance, this interview isn't particularly private. Well, it's obviously going on radio, so it's not private at all. But right, right, yeah. No, I, I myself, uh, ACLU helped me sue the CIA for keeping files on me. Oh, well, and, tell me what was the story? Huh? What? Why? Why they were fine? Uh, for, why was they fine? Um, I had uh, worked with the magazine called Covert Action Quarterly, uh-huh. and it later became Covert Action Information Bulletin. I mean, it was formerly Covert Action Information Bulletin, then became Covert Action Quarterly, and uh-huh. they were exposing, you know, covert actions abroad. Okay. That what bad stuff that the U.S. was doing. Okay, I'm sure that didn't make you any friends. Yeah, and also my name is a Chinese last name, uh-huh. so that didn't really help. <laughs> if I, so if what I was happened? Brown, so wait, what brown, happened with the? Did you sue? Uh, it was most. Yeah, I always sued, and uh, uh, they promised not to spy on me again. So Who, please don't spy on really? me. Really? Did yeah, you win? I, um, I don't know. They came on one time. They had a recruitment on campus, and they. They took pictures of me, so <laughs> the CIA recruiter, but I don't think they're supposed to. So wait, did you ever get your file? Yes. You uh, got your file? Redacted, but uh, it was under the Privacy Act, because the FOIA is actually applies to stuff about, you know, I mean, if it's about you, then you have to file under the Privacy Act also. And uh, yeah, I got, you know, cables from different uh, countries, uh, CIA's office. CIA sent a cable out to to the world and to, to the offices around the world. Asking and, them to uh, uh-huh. send in information about me. So. And so, what what came? What could you actually read on? The uh, there was very little stuff. It, they wouldn't even release the dates. Uh, when they we, we finally got some stuff, but at first they said that was national security uh, redacted. I mean, yes, um, they had they couldn't tell me because it was, was a national security issue. Uh-huh. Whatever. So I mean, I didn't get very much, and then we settled out of court because. We thought, the, you know, at that time we thought that we would lose in the court maybe, I don't know. But right. we did settle. When did, when did you do this? When did you find 90s, uh, 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 late 90s, early 2000, okay. I think. Oh, that's interesting. But um, it was during the Oklahoma bombing thing right, right. right after. I think we settled right then and it wasn't really a time to, you know, release the information. I wanted to say that. Don't spy on us because <laughs> we're just Americans. And right. <laughs> but uh, this was, of course, pre-9-11. Right, right, right. And yeah, the, I think the the rules have changed. Yeah, yeah. You know. Do you have any problems flying? Uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> Maybe after this interview. <laughs> no, okay. I mean, like, it's just, I, you know, the, the sad thing is, is that, I mean, I mean, you have situations like, well, I'm not going to say it. Never mind. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it, it is, it was scary because it, they wouldn't even let, give me the file before. They said I had to go to court to get it. Mm-hmm. So then we went to court, and I found my own case, actually, originally, and then the, mm-hmm. it took a while for the ACLU to get interested in it, and mm-hmm. they did, eventually. And then the Center for National Security Study, Kate Martin, who I think has um, has uh, represented some of the Guantanamo people, mm-hmm. actually, and uh, she was my lawyer. Okay. Plus another okay. another lawyer. Okay. At the time. Well, I should get your email. So. And then oh yeah. Questions. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be. I'd really like to. You know. I, I've written some pieces on this, so I can send you really, that stuff. Yeah. And who's your lawyer, actually? Um, it, it's actually his name is David Smallman. He works with. He he represents Valerie Wilson. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, okay, yeah. So he's a good, um, yeah. pretty knowledgeable about. Yeah. 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 Inner. Yeah, I know the the. I think it's. 
it's an area that I've been trying to. At the time, we were trying to get uh, the law, the legislation change on the Privacy Act mm. uh, to get it expanded, even and uh, enforced. I guess because mm-hmm. the Privacy Act says the U.S. cannot uh, retain or collect or retain information relating to First Amendment activities of mm. citizens and permanent residents. Mm. I'm and sure all that is different, though. Yeah, right? after nine eleven, <laughs> yeah. Though, <laughs> like, I think I think there's a uh, exception there's unless other authorized otherwise authorized by statute. Right. So the Privacy Act is a statute. <laughs> so, right, right, right. Oh well. So, yeah, there's been a lot of stuff going on around here. So yeah, with the because of um, you know I mean huge uh, uh, Muslim community you know in um, Orange County even and. Uh, so there's been uh, suspicious activity reporting. Mm-hmm. They've been doing that. Uh, they had a rollout of the report. The private uh, political research associates. Do you know that group? No, in, I don't. In, in Boston. Oh, no, sorry, not in Boston. In um, in in Massachusetts, actually. But uh, anyway, they did a report on the way they are collecting information uh, and asking people to report. Yeah, uh, I to mean, these terrorist information yeah. centers. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the truth is, is that if I, I mean, the, the film, the oath, I wouldn't have been able to make it if I weren't a U.S. citizen. All right. Yeah. Uh, a woman, probably. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the fact, the gender. Yeah. Was it um, hard to get the uh, the people you interviewed to talk to you? Because of yeah, I, I you know, know I mean, I think that, that um, no, it's not a problem. I mean, partly because probably because I, I I made the film in Iraq, so that gave me you know a certain respect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think also I think Western women, um, you're, we're sort of able to move between this, the, the, you know, it's obviously very gender divided, right? Sure. Segregated um, uh, for Yemenis, but if you're a foreigner, you get to you can be within an environment that's 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 male um, and also be in someone's house you know it's, it's you know that's um, where there are women so and if I were if I was approaching it um, as, as a, you know western male it would make probably the work a lot harder so I think it actually makes it easier being a woman um, and and doing this work and it's certainly I mean certainly with my last film um, in Iraq where I actually lived with the family uh, there's no way that would have been possible um for for a, you know a Western man to you know live within the family in the household. Do Do you see your film as uh, would people start giving money and donating to his uh, support? Um, to who? To the to the bodyguards' uh, support now that. Oh, I you know you I don't think so. I mean, it would be a very bad mistake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no seriously, you're giving him the support. Uh, you know, yeah. um, I don't think so. I mean, I think hopefully it it. I think it provides some like really important insights into things like, um, like okay, like interrogation done without the use of torture. I mean, I think that that's actually one of the most important lessons that you learn in the film. Mm. Um, and I think also the, the, I mean the, the fundamental problems with the military commission system that's constantly being being rewritten. I mean, how can you? How can, you know, we have this this redrafting of laws that are constantly being re yeah. you know redrafted i mean how is that going to hold up into any kind of legal scrutiny where you know you create laws that didn't exist to, when? Fit, to fit the crime basically yeah, yeah. to fit the crime fit the and and lesson. there's just there's now been a new drafting of the military commission for that that arrived right in before the Omar Khadr military commission that's now underway in in Guantanamo and you know they didn't even give the rule book 
to the journalist and the, the defense team until the night before the trial started. And you're like, well, you know, you've already, like, you might as well just call it a mistrial now. I mean, like, how can you, yeah. you know, why are we doing this? And, and the truth is, is that the federal court systems have not been the problem. They're not, the, like, the weak link in, in you know. So that was our interview with uh, Laura Poitras of The Oath, which is opening in L.A. on the 21st of this month, a film about the war on terrorism. Uh, now we're going to shift gears. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. And we're going to be dedicating this show to the memory of two Dream Act activists, Tam Tran and also Cynthia Felix, who died in a car accident on Saturday morning in Maine, actually. Um, Tam is from Garden Grove, and both of them were UCLA graduates, and that's where they started in this campaign to get um, the Dream Act enacted. They were both uh, undocumented students, um, one from Mexico and one from Viet- uh, from actually Germany. The parents were from Vietnam. But with us on the line are uh, two directors of a new film that's going to have its world premiere um, this Thursday here at UC Irvine, The Harvest of Loneliness. A welcome to the show, Gil Gonzalez and Vivian Price. Hi, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Um, so um, why did you make this film? Vivian? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll just say, really, um, Gil Gonzalez has been doing research on the Bracero program for, for many years. And I was a graduate student at UCI and then a lecturer there for a few years. And I um, was just so struck by his research um, and its relevance to the discussions about immigration um, that I suggested that we make a film. And... In a foolhardy moment, he took me up on it, and um, it took us five years to do this. But five we really years. think it's wow. an important piece. It's an excellent work. I mean, it looks so uh, well edited. And I thought there would be more of uh, more interviews with Gil, but you don't really appear in the film. No, I was not allowed. <laughs> really? Is that was that really? <laughs> no. Um, actually, you know, I'm a historian by trade, yes. so I'm not a filmmaker. So. Uh, I had to depend a lot on Vivian's experience as a filmmaker. Um, but uh, we both worked on this, and um, we've come through, I think. I, I'm hope. Well, you say you've, you've seen a, a rough cut of it. It isn't yes. the final. Um, so I have to wait until um, the audience <laughs> views it. You know, But um, it, I, I learned a great deal making this film. It was one of the most learning experiences that I've had in any of the work that I've done. I, I think it flowed quite well, and I'm glad you brought it to the present. I mean, it wasn't just an indictment of this Bracero program, but it also raises questions about what's going on today with uh, immigration, with Mexico-U.S. relations, uh, uh, and uh, the globalization, actually. And um, I, the only one little point was that I think some of the subtitles you can read uh, because it overlaid some other image. 
So it was uh, harder to read, harder to read, I guess. That was the last cut. It's been improved. So <laughs> oh, great. We're, we're feverishly finishing the oh, no, subtitles. It must be going crazy. And the, actually, there's some, uh, not just English language subtitles, but also some Spanish language subtitles, yes. actually. Yeah. And, uh, exactly, because we want to make this a film that Spanish speakers and English speakers can watch um, equally in terms of understanding um, what's being said. I was amazed you got all this footage, and I know Gil has shown me before this uh, footage of fumigation when the Barceros who were coming to the U.S. Um, before they got picked, they were actually, oh, was it right before they were selected? They were fumigated with DDT, which is just outrageous. Right. They had to make them into safe, <laughs> cheap labor. Um, they, uh, yeah, that was apparently to get rid of such things as, you know, lice and other bugs. Uh, but that was not the only part of the uh, examination process. They also made sure that they had the kind of muscular build that would make them good agricultural workers. They had to have calluses on their hands, rough hands. <laughs> so uh, they were thoroughly examined, and, you know, they would be sent back if they didn't meet all the criteria for what was called stoop labor. They also wanted people that didn't, uh, didn't really, weren't really well educated. Uh, right. They, they really treated people as though they were, um, you know, cattle. And many of the men that we interviewed, and we interviewed men and women, families, um, said that they were treated like animals and they were inspected like they were horses or cattle. Yeah, and they were sprayed as though they were, um, you know, cattle or animals. Uh, without you wouldn't even do that to an animal, <laughs> but um, and they were rounded up and put in uh, box cars like cattle. Right, right, and and so and then you know the, there's many points that we talk about in terms of the conditions that people face, even in the um, recruit, you know, the migration centers in Mexico, where. Um, the centers were set up uh, to be uh, places where workers were brought at the whim of the grower in the United States. Meanwhile, all this recruitment took place and thousands of men were um, had no place to stay and they were waiting for days, weeks, sometimes months without any um, food or uh, any places to sleep prepared for them. And they had to pay for even... What, one peso to sleep on the ground? Right. <laughs> yes. Right. They, yeah. They were, um, some of them were starving to death um, out at the rec uh, recruiting centers in Mexico, um, starving. We, there was one person we uh, interviewed who said he had didn't eat for three days. Wow. Um, and that uh, begging was part of the whole scene there, be men begging, you know. Um, Dumpster diving. I thought that was just uh, people, did, you know, some of the uh, green activists do that. Uh, the anarchists actually, uh, I had some anarchists on the KUCI once, and they were dumpster diving at the station. <laughs> no, I think it's a, a, an old tradition. It is old tradition, yes, yeah. unfortunately. Right. And, uh, when you're, you know, when you're starving. Yeah, um, for sure. As well as a political act, but... I think that, you know, the thing that we're talking about these, the, some of the 
instances that we really bring out in the film or, you know, really the substance of the program. But what is amazing, and I think what Gil and I both discovered as we talked to um, the folks that we interviewed in um, California, in Texas, in Mexico, and and people who had lived in some of the 28 states where um, the braceros worked, was that um, these were very rampant conditions and that many people today don't know what the Bracero program was because it hasn't been taught in the history books. It hasn't really been documented. And people often were ashamed because they didn't make the money that they were promised. And it was such a bad um, history for them personally that they didn't even want to talk to it to their family about it. No, it's like a system of in- involuntary servitude. Right. They deducted uh, expenses from their pay, so they ended up with pennies. Well, they deducted for their for their meals. The meals, yeah. But uh, they deducted. Um, well, under contracts, it would state a maximum of a dollar seventy-five a day, uh-huh. and so they charged a dollar seventy-five a day. But in order to feed a person let's say, during the 1950s when the program was operating, uh, one researcher found that at Pomona College, students were being fed at 60 cents a day. That's what it would cost to feed a student in a dormitory, 60 cents a day at that time. And so here these men were paying exorbitant fees for some very basic kinds of of, uh, foodstuffs that they would, you know, provide them, I mean, basic stuff. Um, and so in a, they were being cheated um, right and left, and um, uh, there was very little oversight over the program. Um, they were controlled. They couldn't join a union. They couldn't strike. Um, they couldn't um, uh, negotiate over wages. <laughs> Free wage labor is one thing. <laughs> this Bracero system was in, in opposite of it. They were used as strike breakers also. And they were used as strike breakers, yes, whenever uh, um, when they would force them. If they, didn't, if they didn't do what they were told to do, they'd be sent back. Mm. And how about this contract they signed? I mean, most of them probably couldn't read the words, but it was actually on paper a good contract, but in terms of health benefits and insurance if you were killed, um, you know, but they never, they never observed it, the growers. Precisely. And, um, you know, one of the people that we bring out uh, historically in the piece is Ernesto Galarza, who had been, you know, involved in labor organizing among agricultural workers in the 40s. And, um, you know, he observed that the Bracero program was really something that was um, uh, one of the greatest ways of denying labor the right to organize that anybody had ever thought of. He was with the Quakers, uh, American Friends uh, Fields Field Service? Yeah. yeah. American um, Friends Service Committee. They, uh, they were people who listened to him and heard him, but I, I think he also worked independently. Mm, mm. But Ernesto Galarza is somebody who's also not discussed very often. We hear of people like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta who... Um, and Philip Veracruz, who took up where Ernesto Galarza left off only because 
once the Bracero program ended, that then there was a chance for people to organize. Right, right, right. So, I mean, it was the end of the Bracero program that made it possible for farm workers to organize. But one of the things that uh, was told to us was that the whole purpose of the Bracero program was to destroy labor unions in agriculture, which had been so prevalent, particularly in California in the 1930s. So it was successful. And, uh, um, but at the same time, it was, so, um, it was such a rotten program that even the Catholic Church came out, came out against it because of all the, uh, and not just the Catholic Church, but, you know, Ernesto Galarza, um, and a host of people, even, you know, Ed Royball and um, uh, Henry B. Gonzalez, um, realized that this was um, not just uh, a program that exploited labor, but also denied people here the right to work. So that, um, like in the citrus industry here in Orange County, um, foremen were told not to hire from the local labor force, even if there were, uh, uh, in other words, hire only braceros, even if local labor was available in violation of the terms of the international agreement between U.S. and Mexico. Wow. When did it start? When did this bracero program start? Uh, 1942. Um, it starts, uh, one of the major figures uh, promoting it was this man named Charles Teague, who was a major landowner and uh, president of Sunkist. Uh, he was one of the principal lobbyists in Washington. Um, From California, was he? Yeah. yeah. And uh, quite, uh, during the war, did um, there were other national nationals that came, people from other countries that were put into to work on the farms? Uh, well, there were German prisoners of war, um, uh, and after there were Japanese as well after the war. Um, let's see, I think there were, um, if I'm not mistaken, there's some from the Caribbean area. Yeah, Jamaican. Yeah. yeah. Were, they, were they treated better, you think, than people from Mexico? Well, I heard that here in Orange County, uh, the Jamaicans uh, raised a little bit of hell. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm not supposed to say these things. But anyway, they, they, they became, um, um, what, uh, rebellious, you know, not taking just any old food or any old working hour. And so uh, they were uh, not welcomed after, and they stopped bringing them in. They, they, they just, you know, were a little bit too independent-minded. <laughs> wow. So they were not welcome better. How did you track down everybody? Um, did you, you had, is it just kind of a, uh, I mean, word of mouth thing, and you knew somebody that knew somebody else, and that's what happened, or how you found the interviewees? Well, actually, what's happening now is that a lot of the um, braceros are organizing to get the ten percent that they've been—they were uh, owed. I saw. Yeah, in the film, there's a clip, right? There's a clip of some people marching. Exactly, in Juarez, oh. and um, people have been organizing again throughout the United States 
and in Mexico to um, try to claim this money that, um, especially in the 40s, was taken out of their pay and then... Um, would you claim it from the banks or who would you claim it from? It was taken by the, Ameri the American banks and then supposedly sent to Mexico. So who, um, and, who would they claim it from now? Well, um, good question. The problem is that a lot of the banks have closed or they can't find the money, that sort of thing. They can't find the records. <laughs> it, everything went under the table. I have a, a colleague who's uh, who's Armenian, and he his brother is a lawyer, and as was able to sue a lot of banks for uh, you know stealing the money of Armenians a uh, hundred years ago when they ma when the Turks massacred them, and those banks have had to pay a hundred years later. Mm. Well, well, I think that some investors have been able to get some money, but it's it's been few and far between. Um, but anyway, that's one of the, the reasons why we were able to find so many folks, because they have not only come to out to claim their 10%, mm. but in a way they've come out to claim their dignity and their place in history. What do you, what do you mean 10%? This is the 10% the of their pay that was deducted, and that's the money that was sent to the banks. Oh, oh, I see. And it was sort of a supposedly an insurance policy that they would go home. Mm. Oh, I see. But, right. you know, there, one of the ways in which I became involved in this um, was um, I, I, in a course of mine. It was an introductory class in Chicano Latino Studies. And um, I was just beginning to study the Bracero program. Uh, but basically, you know, using archival material and so on. And uh, I uh, gave some lectures on the Bracero program, and one student raised her hand, and um, it came to be that her grandfather was a Bracero. Hmm. And I asked the question in, in class, how many have a family member who is a Bracero? And 13 students raised their hand. Wow, that many. It, yeah. Including, including the TA. <laughs> huh. So I thought to myself, well, maybe you know this is an opportunity to do some interviewing for a work of some sort. Um, and so I, I um, asked the student if she would like to work as a research assistant, which she did. And um, she was from Stockton and uh, helped me doing to do a number of interviews up in up in Stockton, which I incorporated into my book on the Bracero program. Um, but um, another class that I had, there were 27 students who were children or grandchildren uh, of Braceros. So it's a very, and they meet here in uh, Santa Ana well, once a month. The, the Braceros meet, um, and it's over the issue of wages, or, or the 10% that was taken out of their paycheck. So um, uh, they they you know were sort of hidden away and they've come out now. Yeah. Um, and I think they're very happy to have their experience told, which was you know held back and um, you know in the closet somewhere. Yeah. Um, but um, they're very very happy to have that story told, and many of them hid it. They, they kept it to themselves, not even to their families. 
Um, and so this is an opportunity to tell their history. Um, that's the um, that's the message that I got from many of these these men and women, because it was not just the men who came to work, but the women and families who were left behind. Um, they had never really told their story, and so they were they opened their doors. I mean, they welcomed us to have us interview them, and they made the story. <laughs> they made the film. Um, and, uh, and then the consequences, too, of the Bracero program have led to a, a, a number of things which we try to portray in the film. You know, on the personal level, these the, the, um, this, the stories that people haven't been able to tell and, and haven't been able to claim, you know, their own history, um, as well as the way that the Bracero program kind of created this, it was, it was situated in the, you know, a colonial relationship between the United States and Mexico, um, and, uh, and in which really, you know, there was very little power on uh, the side of the, the, the men who were working and um, even of the, uh, you know, exerted by the Mexican government themselves and uh, on behalf of their own people. So, um, you know, one of the, as the result of the Bracero program, this sort of path became um, tread to go to the United States to try to survive because uh, many of the rural people were displaced in Mexico um, through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and um, more and more, and especially, you know, more lately through the 80s and 90s. Um, there's been, you know, NAFTA has further displaced people. And so many people have, we even saw villages that were, you know, totally abandoned mm. by people because they can't survive in Mexico. So that brings us, as you said, up to the present. How, do, how did the women and children survive that were left behind? They're kind of the, also the heroes of this story. How do they survive? Well, the stories they told us is that they lived alone, they worked, um, they tried to survive as best they could. Um, the monies the men made didn't really support them very well, so they often went into debt mm -hmm. to live. Um, so it was very, very tough for them. And it wasn't very pleasant because they never knew how long the men were going to be gone for. Um, and some, you know, the whole village would empty sometimes of, of, you know, working men, New, newly wed men, right? I mean, they just often married. they were yeah. often they were newly wed, but you know, they take middle-aged men as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, villages would empty, and uh, they'd have to fend the fields for themselves or whatever they could do to make you know ends meet. It was tough. It was really hard, and that's the word they use over and over again. It was very hard. How did they, I mean, these are all a group of men here who have no uh, female companionship in, in the heterosexual world. How did they survive? Well, we heard uh, just one other, you know, moment about the women who were left behind. You know, this is one of the uh, points that we tried to make in the film that um, women talked about, you know, having to fend for themselves and be creative and be resourceful. Right. And, and... Um, you know, they certainly 
uh, you know, found ways to, to manage to feed the, the, their children, but it was, you know, at the cost of um, enormous sacrifice. Um, but, you know, for the men in the United States, you know, the, this, this was a labor camp. So sometimes, uh, I, I mean, you know, this isn't something we go into that much in the film. Right. There's, there's only so much you can do in 54 minutes or 55 Did minutes. They, but were there clubs they could hang out at? Uh, they couldn't go, they didn't have the money to go they away. Were charged, oh, right. They were charged just for the truck trip. Oh. From the labor camp to the town, yeah. they weren't. A lot of times, they were. They weren't allowed to go to town even to mass. The priests would come out to the camp because <laughs> the you know the town viewed the camps too as sort of in you know an invasion. Um, but you know, people, you know, would. This is again another way that people were not able to make much money because they had to pay for everything. They had to pay for threads to darn their you know, holes in their socks and things oh, like yeah. that. Um, the camps were not, were they surrounded by barbed wire or fences and that kind yeah, of stuff? Yes. You know, we, we visited, um, I mean, it depended. There were a lot of variations, but we, we visited one camp in Texas, which is one, you know, state that a lot of the men were saying, you know, they didn't really want to work in Texas. And, in fact, I think Mexico banned um, Texan farmers or growers from hiring um, braceros for the first 10 years. Wow. Right? Oh, isn't, isn't that right, Gil? Oh, no. Well, yeah, it was for a few years. It wasn't 10. Mm. Okay. But <laughs> there, was, there were trucks that would take men to the border, and they became undocumented. Oh. Uh, and so there was a service provided by bringing in men who were not under the Bracero program. So they satisfied Texas. It was Texas that was denied uh, Braceros, but they right. got the undocumented, and everybody cooperated on this, the Mexican government, the American government, um, and things did not fundamentally change. Ah. Well, we're coming to the end of our program, and I hope y your um, documentary wins an award, uh, or m more than one, and it looks like it's so good that it will. Well, um, can you be on a committee, the selection committee? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a conflict of interest, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, well, again, we want to also say that we had wonderful um, uh, camera people, cinematographers who worked with us, and a terrific editor, Adrian um, Salinas, who's really helped uh, tell the story. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of humor that the men uh, express, as well as... Um, you know the women, and uh, there's music. There's yeah. there's you know a cultural feeling that uh, that lifts this story into a, a really compelling one. And I, I hope people get a chance to see it. Yeah, there's the world premiere is this Thursday at HIB Humanities Instruction Building at uh, seven o'clock. But six fifteen there's a reception, and you'll right. be both there in the Q and A afterwards. Yeah, right. Uh, and it, I believe some of the former Braceros will be there as well. Oh, great. So we've been talking with uh, Gil Gonzalez, who is professor here, professor emeritus here, and uh, Vivian Price. That's uh, right. And uh, who was a PhD student here. And right, was, now. now teaches at uh, Cal State. Dominguez. Yeah. correct. Great. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, well, thank you, Dan. Thank you. And I'll see you Thursday. See you Thursday. Thank you. Great. All right. Bye-bye.
so that was our interview with two directors of uh, Harvest of Loneliness about Bracero program, indictment of the Bracero program, and also uh, earlier we talked with the director of The Oath, a uh, film about the driver of Osama bin Laden uh, that's opening in L.A. on May 21st and later in Orange County. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.